Looking for a new show to dive into? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like the full season of FX's epic limited series Shogun, FX's new international spy thriller The Veil, starring Emmy and Golden Globe winner Elizabeth Moss. And don't miss the all-new crime series Under the Bridge, inspired by shocking true events and starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone. It's all new, and it's streaming now on Hulu. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man that has a hobby of collecting weird sidekicks, and that's why I'm here. He is the captain. It's a better hobby than making dresses out of body parts. It's good to be seen, and it's good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. This week we are drinking Citridonculus by the good people at Wiley Roots Brewing Company, garage grade four and a quarter bottle caps out of five. Citridonculus is an American double India pale ale with citra hops and it is delicious. And this week's beer was brought to us by these ridiculously awesome friends of the show right here. First up, we have Rachel in Wayne, New Jersey, giving us a long distance Cheers with her wine glass. And a big shout out to one of my favorite Beatles songs, Penny Lane and Tucson. Next, we have Bobby with an eye in Thermopolis, Wyoming. And a big we like your jib to Jessica in Little Rock, Arkansas. Next up, sending love from way out west, we have Aurora in San Diego. And last but certainly not least, we have Leroy in Baltimore. So thanks to everybody for filling up the fridge for this week's show. If you want to help us out for next week, go to truecrimegarage.com and click on the donate button. Make sure you follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at True Crime Garage. And that is enough of the business. Thank you, Captain. Everybody gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. When we are little kids, there are stories that the older kids tell us. Supposed real-life terrifying stories handed down from teenagers 
to smaller children. And then the small children get a little older. And then they tell the same stories they once heard. Much of these are simply folklore and urban legends. Stories of an escaped violent mental patient stalking lovers' lanes with a hook for a hand. Or one I heard in my hometown about a certain hill that if you park your car there on a certain night, the ghost of someone having died in a car accident many years earlier would throw your car down the hill into the tree-lined ravine below, killing you, and later giving the appearance that you suffered the same car accident and death as the ghost so many years before. This week's case is much like these urban legends, in a sense that the story has been repeated for decades. And like any good urban legend, this is a cautionary tale about the horrific and tragic death you could have if you don't listen to your parents, obey the rules, or if you talk to strangers. For kids growing up in parts of Wyoming and Oklahoma, they heard stories of what could happen to you when you do talk to a strange man or accept a ride from someone you don't know. You don't come back. No one sees you alive again. What was and remains different for those kids compared to other children in other neighborhoods? When these kids grew up, they learned the stories they were told about missing children and a killer cowboy were real. This week, we discuss the Rollins Rodeo Murders. This case has several names, but the one I find used most commonly is the Rollins Rodeo Murders. This case may have, and may have are the key words to pay attention to here, And that will become clear as we dive into this thing, but this case may have or seems to have started in Rollins, Wyoming back in the mid-1970s. Now, Captain, a lot of people don't know how we go about our business behind closed doors here in the garage, but about once a month, you and I have a case scheduling meeting. And I love these times that we spend together. You come to the table with uh, cases that you have in your arsenal, and I have some cases in my backpack as well. Mm -hmm. And we sit down and we discuss what cases should we cover for the next several weeks. And I got to give you kudos, my friend, because you came up with this case, and I find it to be extremely fascinating. Well, you can thank the listeners. Yes. Most of our cases, whether it be cases you bring to the table or that I bring, The overwhelming majority of the cases that we cover are listener suggestions, so we're very thankful to all of you out there for providing those to us, and we receive an overwhelming number of these case suggestions. Yeah, my list is over a 1,000 now. So I kind of framed that in there at the beginning because coming up with this case, I had never heard of this one. And look, there are obviously many cases I have never heard of, but just like the boys on the tracks and the missing Fort Worth trio cases that we covered, of course, all available on the very free, very awesome Stitcher app. These are cases that have fascinated me, ones that I was not familiar with and cases that unless you were 
around in that area around the time of these cases, you didn't know about them either. And the Rollins rodeo murders is exactly like the boys on the tracks in the Fort Worth trio cases. When you learn more about this, you will be asking yourself, why have I not heard of this one? Why is this case not more well-known? And I say not more well-known, but I found evidence to suggest that people even living in the area had not known about these cases. The, some of the locals around these rodeo murders cases, I found one post on Reddit where someone was saying they grew up in the area of one of these cases saying they didn't believe it was a true story until they got older and learned that in fact it was some thought it was just a fictionary cautionary tale told right. to kids, you know, don't get into cars with strangers. Like an urban legend. Yes. So to get started, let's go back to July 4th, 1974 independence day in Rollins, which is in carbon County, Wyoming Rollins back in the mid seventies. The population is less than 8,000 people. And I've never been to Wyoming, but the town of Rollins is in the Southern portion of Wyoming. In fact, carbon County is on the state's Southern border. So touching the North Colorado border on July 4th, 1974, the weather was pretty much average, at least historically with a high of 84 degrees, 19 year old Carlene Brown and her good friend, also 19 years old, Christy gross visited the little britches rodeo that day in Rollins, Wyoming. Later they were reported missing when both young women failed to return home. Very little information is available regarding the circumstances of their disappearances, but neither are considered to have run away to start a new life somewhere else. In fact, according to the charlieproject.org website, Carlene's case is classification is endangered missing. And many believe she was murdered many years ago, probably shortly after she was abducted. Authorities could only trace back their whereabouts to the little britches rodeo as that was the last confirmed sightings of either woman. After they disappeared, the car they were traveling in was found abandoned in Warland, Wyoming. So this is over 200 miles away, north. We will come back to this vehicle later. Trust me, there's, there's some issues with this vehicle. Authorities initially believed that both Carlene and Christy left on their own, leaving the rodeo on their own. But the investigation... As it began and carried on, they started coming up with some other possibilities as time passed. And this was when no one had heard from either woman. You know, as the time was going on, they thought at some point they might resurface, but they never did. According to the Charlie Project website, Carlene Brown is missing from Rollins, Wyoming since July 4th, 1974. Her date of birth is January 14th, 1955. So, she would have just recently celebrated her 64th birthday if she was alive today. She was 19 years old when she was last seen. She was approximately five foot to five foot three inches tall and weighed between 100 and 120 pounds. Her distinguishing characteristics, she is a Caucasian with brown hair, brown eyes, and she has surgical scars on her big toes on both feet. Now regarding Christy Gross, her skeletal remains were found. But this wasn't until over nine years later. There was no sign of Carlene at the scene. And as stated before, she has never been seen or heard from again. Christy Gross had been killed by two heavy blows to the skull. Her body was found October 27th of 1983. 
three miles south of Sinclair, Wyoming. Okay, so for those of us not super familiar with the great state of Wyoming, the two disappeared in Rollins. And then their vehicle was found in Warland, Wyoming. So roughly over 200 miles or so north of where they were last seen. Yeah. Then nine years later, Christy Gross's body is found three miles south of Sinclair. This is nowhere near where the vehicle was found. In fact, this is much closer to where authorities believe they may have been abducted from. Rollins. Yes. So Sinclair is roughly just seven to 10 miles east of Rollins. So just three miles south of that is where the body was found. Right. The information out there does not provide a great description of the state of the body, although no one anywhere is saying anything like Christy was alive for years after her abduction. So I'm guessing the state of the body would have been extremely decomposed. So possibly they're abducted from the rodeo. She is murdered seven miles outside of the rodeo. Their car is found 200 miles from there. Mm -hmm. And possibly the other victim is murdered somewhere else or is still alive. Correct. We also don't have a great description of where her body was found. But we already said Rollins was a small town. Well, Sinclair is significantly smaller than Rollins. In fact, I couldn't find any record that suggests Sinclair ever even had a thousand people living there. The description does say three miles south of Sinclair, and there are open fields, creeks, plenty of wide open spaces. It looks like we have probably oil fields, refineries, pipelines, that sort of thing. So the great wide open. So what we have here is a small town and a mysterious disappearance of not one, but two 19 year old girls. They went missing together. The car is found. And then not until nine years later is Christie's body discovered, but still to this day, Carlene has never been located. So before we get too deep into some other stuff, I have to mention a newspaper article I found from November 11th, 1983. This is when they are announcing that they have identified the unidentified body that was found and that we now know to be the body of Christy Gross. According to this article, they are interviewing Deputy Sheriff Jeff Fakosh, and I don't know what to think of this. I, I truly don't, as this one article completely contradicts some other information that I have found and that we have by this point in the story already covered. Before we get to the contradictions, there are some somewhat more detailed information in this article. Christie's body was identified using a partial dental records match. So just a, a partial match. Jeff Fakosh says her death was caused by at least two blows to the head. So maybe more now for the contradictions, which I find this to be huge. First, this says the body was found a few miles North of Sinclair. So exactly the opposite direction of what all of the other information states next and this is even more aggravating in this article, Jeff Fakosh says a van that the women were driving was found at the fairgrounds. Well, that's different. Completely different than all the information that is current that is out there. We're talking about a car that was found 200 miles away. He's referencing a uh, van that right. they were driving found at the fairgrounds where they were last seen. Hashtag ban the van. But also you just wonder... Is this just bad reporting? Or does Fakosh not have the right information? Right. Because we're talking about, he's, he's talking about a case that they find the body nine years later. He's being interviewed because they just found the body. 
he may be unclear as to what took place nine years later. And I say this frustrates me to no end. And it's not so much that the information contradicts itself so much. It's more so that I spent a hell of a long time trying to figure out which one was correct. Right. And I couldn't determine. So you're hearing both of them. Only one of them is correct. We know that. Janet Franson, who has worked Carlene Brown's case, says, quote, let's be clear. No one believes Brown's case will have a happy ending. We are pretty sure Carlene Brown is a homicide case. Franson worked for the National Missing and Unidentified Persons System, NamUs for short, and had this to say of her work and the cases that came with it. Quote, a lot of these cases are homicides without bodies. When they happened, local law enforcement didn't have any idea what to do with it. It wasn't that they were neglectful. It's just they didn't have the kind of expertise. Franson has worked very hard in her capacity to help close Carlene's case, but there are complications. Franson says the problem is we can't find her family. See, Carlene was adopted, and investigators don't know the identity or whereabouts of her birth family. Those records are gone. Her adoptive parents divorced prior to 1974. Carlene lived in Rollins with her adopted father and brother at the time of her disappearance. Her adoptive mother lived in Colorado. Carlene graduated from Rollins High School in 1973. Today, her adoptive mother, father, and brother are all now deceased. Janet Franson keeps searching for any of Carlene Brown's family that may be out there, so that she can get DNA samples to build a profile. So we have to think about this for a second here, Captain. The situation is this. We have a missing woman who's been missing for a very long time. Should they find remains, will they even be able to connect it back to Carlene because we don't have a DNA profile of her? Now, what I have found, and this is in the records, but once again, I'm... I'm once bitten twice shy about this because we've already seen discrepancies in these records. What I've found is that regarding Carlene Brown, no fingerprints are on file for her, but what is listed is that there are dental records on file. Right. And I say that I say that with a little hesitation because we've seen other cases that state that there are dental records on file only to find out later. That is not the case on Sunday. August 4th, 1974, 14-year-old Deborah Ray Meyer went missing. Deborah actually lived in Red Lodge, Montana at the time of her disappearance. She and her family were visiting relatives in Rollins, Wyoming on the day she went missing. Deborah was last seen departing from a family member's residence near the intersection of 7th and Spruce Streets. She planned to walk to a local movie theater. By what remains on the record these days, There is not anything to suggest that she ever arrived at the movie theater. Then she never returned back to the home. This area, though, seems difficult for me. This is very much the downtown area. And if, in fact, she was on foot during daytime hours, there is something, I think, very fishy about her having last been seen in this area. She likely traveled more on foot than where she was last seen. Okay. Uh, she probably traveled a little bit further than the last time she was seen, but there are no witnesses. There aren't any witnesses that saw her interacting with anyone or anyone snatching her up. I mean, depending on which direction she was walking, 
there seems to be a lot of houses and businesses throughout that whole area. You know, our minds often will go immediately to a vehicle was used in an abduction. At least my mind does, you know, and rightfully so, because often that is the result, what the result often shows. Yeah. However, in this particular story, I wonder about the businesses and houses in the area. This, this case I wonder so much about because there is simply no good public information out there so that I have to question this myself. We have a situation where a young girl goes on vacation with her family to visit other family members in this area. And we don't really have any public record of this disappearance. The only thing I could find was her parents stating that she was a good kid and she would have never run off, but no description of anything that could have happened to her that day. We don't even know roughly about what time of day she was last seen or by whom. Right. We don't know how long until she was reported missing, but we have a sighting of her going downtown. That's, that's what the information states. And all we can gather is that it would appear that police were unable to find anyone at the movie theater that reported seeing her that day. So she's 14 years old. So roughly 14, 19 victims age would be similar in both cases. Mm-hmm. It'd be too far off. And if she's 14 and looks 16, then it's even closer in age. Deborah has almost no digital footprint and her case is almost an Oh, by the way, type case, right? Just tacked on to these other cases. According to an organization near and dear to my heart, the national center for missing and exploited children. Deborah at the time of her disappearance was Caucasian with brown hair and eyes five foot four and weighing about 115 pounds. So a very similar general description as Carly Brown. Right. According to findthemissing.org's Facebook page, Deborah has some distinctive features, and they are as described. She has a pencil eraser size growth on her left ear, and she has a full set of dentures. Her clothing and accessories worn on that day are listed as unknown. Her fingerprint information is not available. Her dental information and charting is not available. But on the brighter side, it does say that her DNA status, sample submitted, test complete. So it looks like at least they have DNA on file. Wait, go back to that. You, you said a full set of dentures? Correct. At, at 14? Correct. Well, that's pretty strange. So we have two 19-year-old females that go missing mm-hmm. a month later in the same area. Yeah. We have a 14-year-old go missing. Yes. So... You're talking about, we have a similar description of two of the victims here. Same, similar general description anyway. We also have potential crimes of opportunity, abductions of opportunity. Somebody spots these girls, right? Uh, these young women, and decides to pounce. Well, the 14-year-old would be walking. And she was walking by herself from what little information is out there. Right, and then you have the 19-year-olds. They could be walking to their car. We don't know where they would have been abducted from. Right. Well, and here's the thing too, you got to consider with the 19 year olds, the 1974, what if, and I, I'm not saying that that year plays much into it, but just kind of ro- That's what it sounded rolling like. through this in my own mind here. Uh-huh. You have to wonder with the vehicle being found 
that's that's why it's so aggravating where the hell this vehicle was actually found. Because one thing I wonder about in a crime of opportunity, do we have someone saying, hey, could you give me a lift? I mean, that seems like the most plausible thing to me, especially if you find the vehicle 200 miles away. A lot of hitchhikers. Yeah, and they may have felt a sense of safety in numbers because there's two of them and maybe just one man or one young man or somebody asked for a ride. Hey, could you give me a ride just two miles up the road? Sure, no problem. We're leaving anyway. Right. And then, boom, you're never seen again. Well, and if we think of it in those terms, then we'd have to look at the perpetrator being somebody that doesn't live in the area but possibly works in the area. And so you could take, like, the rodeo there. They normally have, like, at convention centers or whatever where people work there periodically. Mm-hmm. So they might not live. They might live pretty far away, but they work in the area. So I wonder also the day that the 14-year-old goes missing – was there something in that town happening? Was there another rodeo or was there some show or play or whatever? There could have been. I mean, these rodeos happen frequently in this area and you'll see that as we continue on through these cases, but the, there's some very difficult things here with, with this case, with, with Deborah's case in particular for me. Um, and you had asked me just, briefly before we flip the mics back on, do I think the cases, these cases are connected? Well, I think the time frame. I mean, we have one month to the day between the abductions. So that plays a factor in, in a, in a pro for, yes, they're probably connected Two, you have the area. We have a small area where these two abductions take place. Right. So another, another check in the yes box for, are they connected? I hesitate to say that they are connected because of this with Deborah's case. There is no information out there. And what I mean by that is as stated, her digital footprint is extremely small. If you find some information about her on the Charlie project or, you know, missing persons, websites, so on and so forth, it's all pretty much the same information regurgitated over and over again. And it's basically a short little paragraph. Where I find problems with her case is the lack of evidence, the lack of information about this little girl. Okay, so. Or the fact that she had a full mouth of dentures. Okay, well. That's a strange. It, it's, it's unique, yes. It, and we don't know why she had a full set of dentures, but here's what I question further. If, if she has dentures, why are there no dental records? And, and I know somebody's laughing right now going, well, that's because she doesn't have any teeth. Well, you would have some information. You pay somebody paid for those dentures. Right. Somewhere there's a record of those dentures. And even if it's in her home state of Montana, why don't we have that information? Mm-hmm. You know, we're talking about could her remains have been found between when she went missing in current day? Possibly. I don't know what it means to say that they have DNA tests submitted and that they have something on file. I don't know if if throughout the course of the years, the decades that have gone by, if certain remains were tested that were found, what I'm getting at is the the problem I have here is, look, we have the one single statement by her parents that say she was a good kid. She wouldn't have run off. Right. I have a huge problem that they, there's no damn information about this kid. It's almost like she went out for a walk one day while on vacation with her parents. She disappeared, and it's almost like she never even existed. But her parents weren't from the area. 
Correct. They lived in Montana. They were visiting relatives in Rollins, Wyoming. So I think that makes it difficult because we also don't know the financial status of her parents. So they could have just not had enough money to stay in the area and keep looking for her. And also during the 70s with all the, the, the gas shortage and all that stuff, maybe they just couldn't afford to keep traveling back and forth. Well... I get that. And and I'm I don't want to sound like I'm blaming the parents here because I think where my my anger should be directed is maybe there's just a lack of good record keeping. Right. Maybe that information was submitted. But again, I question this whole thing. Like we said, dentures were made, no dental records on file. Seems strange, seems fishy. Nobody gives a time of when this girl was last seen. Right. Seems strange. Also, what clothing was she wearing? What articles, uh, accessories did she have on her person at that time? We don't know. It says unknown. Wh- why would it be unknown? How right. much stuff did she pack to go on this trip? And you can't go, even if you didn't see her, I get it. Maybe you're busy hanging out with relatives that day. You didn't actually physically see her leave the home and walk away. But you can't go through the suitcase and go, well, it looks like this is missing and this is missing. She probably had that on her that day. Well, and again, it's not like today and age where you can have somebody go missing, let's say in Cleveland, and then I live in Columbus. Well, I can do a bunch of work on the internet to keep the story alive mm-hmm. or you know, make some phone calls. So again, it's, it's, it's almost like this person disappeared, but we don't even know anything about her and- other than that she had a full mouth of fake teeth at the age of 14. And two, uh, the, the other very sad part of her short, her very short story is I almost feel like if there weren't these other cases, these other abductions, right? She, she may have no record of her at all at this point. Very likely her parents have passed away. I would love, you know, we even did a shout out this week to someone, uh, a great listener in Wyoming in the state of Wyoming. I would love if somebody in the area has information or has old newspaper articles or something to expand her story more so that we can learn more about her possible disappearance. Right. Again, it could be like some public records. There might be a bunch of articles on this. Mm -hmm. It just never made it online. Yeah. All these decades later, all these miles away. And here's the other thing, too, that's a little weird, Captain. We do see this once in a while, but it's not extremely common. We have covered a lot of missing persons cases, a lot of homicide cases, but very few cases have we covered where a person, a child is on vacation or visiting another state or or someplace else with their parents and then they go missing there before they return home. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. 
unique playing pieces, and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I highly recommend that you give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com garage today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash garage. This show is proudly sponsored by BetterHelp. Check out BetterHelp.com slash garage today. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners, get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com garage. Visit IXL.com garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com garage today. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself 
to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right, we're back. Cheers, Mimetes. Cheers, Captain. And usually I don't get frustrated or angry until the second episode of a case. But while I'm voicing and venting my anger regarding the lack of personal information about a missing child, right? I do want to discuss something that we have mentioned before on the show. But a quick reminder, you can download the free FBI Child ID Kit. I recommend doing this. It's an easy way to store your child's most current information. God forbid you need it for a missing child situation. Not only would you have recent information of your child, but if you are out and about and something should happen, as long as you have your device that you have the info, you have the info of the person, your child that is missing. You can pass that along and hopefully that comes to help. Now, we got to talk about another case. Okay, Captain? This is August 23rd. So we're talking less than three weeks later. 10-year-old Jaylene Baker went to the Carbon County Rodeo with a friend. After the second performance, the two got separated at the fairgrounds. Jaylene was to return home by 10.30 p.m. When she did not, her parents notified police at 11 p.m. and reported her missing. Jaylene Baker was just 10 years old. Missing flyers were printed and distributed, this providing a brief description of the young girl standing five feet tall with light brown hair, brown eyes, and she was last seen wearing an all-navy colored outfit. It looks like authorities went all out on the search for her, conducting door-to-door searches and even using two planes to assist in the search. This took place on Saturday afternoon, so less than 24 hours after she was noticeably gone. Also, they did one of my favorite tactics when you have a missing child and no real leads. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for the old pervert roundup. Police announced that the investigation included the holding and questioning of sex offenders believed to have been in the area at the time, but they were eventually all cleared. Authorities did announce publicly that they did not rule out the possibility of the child being kidnapped. However, no leads would indicate such that turned up in the early investigation. By the Thursday after, so just about a week after she went missing, the authorities announced that any leads that local searches provided were followed, but they went nowhere. And now they were bringing in the FBI for fear that the girl may have been abducted and transported across the state line. Then, eight months later, on April 23rd, 1975, a man out walking his dog discovered the partially nude, lifeless body of Jaylene Baker. 
This was near the city's gravel pit about two miles west of Rollins, Wyoming. Her body was found in the face-down position. She was wearing only tennis shoes, socks, and a t-shirt. Laboratory analysis of the girl's clothing failed to produce any evidence. What they did learn is the cause of death was a head injury, likely caused by a severe blow to the head. The county sheriff went on record stating that he has no doubt in his mind that the girl died where she was found. He said evidence at the scene told them so, though he would not specify as to what that evidence was. So even though we now know that two bodies of the missing girls would be eventually found, the the thing to hone in on here before we venture further is that looking back at 1974, we had four missing girls in just seven weeks in Rollins, Wyoming. So closing out the year of 1974, they still hadn't found any bodies yet. It wasn't until eight months later that the first body was found. And then the second body's found nine years later. Four missing people in a small area in seven weeks is just, I mean, it's incredible. Well, and the fact that three of the victims were last seen at a rodeo. So that, it's it's strange. Yeah, and it, that's what's troubling too, is that, okay, we're talking about rodeos here. There probably would have been a lot of people at both of those events. Yet we don't have any eyewitnesses saying that we saw any of these missing people speaking with somebody or at least anybody that was investigated at the time. Then we have the young girl who was abducted very likely in a busy section of town in broad daylight. Right. I still would like to know what was happening in that town the day she went missing. Yeah. And so it's almost like, do you have a person that is, if it's one offender, is it someone that is seeking out crimes of opportunity, seeking out targets of opportunity taking themselves, putting themselves in a situation where there's a lot of people, there's a lot of potential victims to choose from at these rodeos. And then do we have somebody that's driving around downtown looking for a potential victim? Or is it just something that this person stumbled upon throughout the course of their day? It also seems like the victims have similar looks as well. Yeah. A lot, a lot of, even though you have a varying a, age range here. Right. You have but some, varying by not so a few much. years. Yeah. yeah. So you have a similar height, similar appearance, Caucasian, brown hair, brown eyes. Right. Um, regarding these cases, though, looking at them as if they were a whole, being that they would be all connected. It seems kind of very obvious to me. You know, you mentioned the rodeos. Those ones seem obviously to be likely connected. Again, I'm still out in left field regarding Deborah's disappearance, as we know so little about that case. Now, are you ready to open up the floodgates, Captain? Am I? Yes. I'm the captain. All right. I don't like floods. <laughs> so we'll wait till next week. Okay. All right. But I do have to warn <sighs> you. You. Open, you can open them up. I do have to warn you before we move forward, you might want to put on your raincoat because there's going to be some shit. All right. <laughs> Maybe I should put on my shit coat. We're going to fast forward to September 26th, 1981 and move our location to Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. So seven years after the four disappearances in Rollins and many miles southeast of Rollins. Right. 13-year-old Charlotte June Kenzie and 13-year-old Cinda Jean Pallet 
attended the Oklahoma State Fair in Oklahoma City. Both girls were accompanied by their boyfriends. They were dropped off at the fair around noon on that Saturday. At about 5 p.m., Charlotte called her family and told her family that she and Cinda were offered a job by a carney to help unload plush toys from a truck at the fair. It was then that all four, the two girls and two boys, left with an unknown man. Right. This guy was sporting a yellow identification worker's badge. Now, he took them to a truck stop off of I-40 to meet the truck that they were going to unload. Right. But the truck was not there. It was nowhere to be found. So the man then gave the boys, the two boys, $10 and told them to wait while he went to get the truck. The man drove off with Charlotte and Cinda. The two 13-year-old girls were waving out the back window of the car to the two boys as the vehicle drove off. The two girls promised to call home again when it was time for them to be picked up from the fair, but that call would never come. But here we have something, Captain, that we didn't have in the cases we have previously discussed. Here we have potential eyewitnesses, the two boys. Right. And these kids have some information to offer up to the investigators. First, the man had shown the kids an ID badge, and the ID badge had the man's photo and name printed on it. Got him. Second, before stopping off to as you know, they were told to unload this truck, the man stopped along the way and purchased two pairs of gloves and two rolls of duct tape. And more importantly, the two boys remembered the name on the ID badge. It was Donald Michael Corey. By Wednesday, September 30th, with the girls still nowhere to be found, and Donald Michael Corey also nowhere to be found, the police, along with the FBI, secured an arrest warrant for Donald Michael Corey, charging him with two counts of kidnapping, and the teletypes were sent out to police stations throughout multiple states as the manhunt for Donald Corey was now in full swing. Police could prove Corey was in the Oklahoma City area. This is as late as the day before the kidnapping when Corey checked himself into a hospital in that area. Now, Corey suffered pretty badly from an ulcer. Hospitals were a regular thing for him. And we would see this as authorities began to track Donald Corey's movements, hoping to catch up with him as he seemed to be getting further and further away from Oklahoma City. Oklahoma State Police and the FBI got news from Jackson, Mississippi, that Donald Corey had surfaced just briefly there where he used his ID and information to get Demerol injections, a painkiller he was using in regards to his ulcer. Then on Friday, October 9th, 1981, Oklahoma State Police, they get the big break that they were looking for. This is a call from the Greenville Police in Alabama. They wanted to know if the warrant for Donald Corey was still standing. Well, yes, they were told. And why are you asking? They responded because we have Donald Corey here at our police station. Mm. He walked in earlier today and gave us his information. Corey was arrested. Now, this is how this whole thing went down. So, yeah, this is confusing. Yeah, Corey went to a First Baptist church. Okay. This was to apply for some assistance as he was not working and he's suffering from this ulcer. At the church, 
Donald Corey provided all of his information using his real name, driver's license, and real information. Well, they have a system with the rules in Alabama. And if you are applying for assistance and you have an out-of-state driver's license or ID, you then must go to the local police department where they will run a background check right. and then send you back to the church with the proper paperwork so that you then may file for assistance. Well, of course, they didn't send Donald Corey back. Instead, they called Oklahoma City and they very shortly afterwards sent him to jail. Got him. Got him. Got him. Got him. <laughs> Got him again. Got him again. Okay, so Donald Michael Corey. The man with three first names. Yeah, never trust a man with three first names or a guy that goes by a nickname. Or only one name. Right. <laughs> I don't know what that means. Or Well, you could just go by a name and it could not be a real name. Okay, so just because we have this guy and it has the same name as the name tag, is this our guy? Because we do have two eyewitnesses yeah. that they could put him in a lineup and say, hey, is this the Donald? Is this the Donald Duck that you're looking for? Well, and p remember, police could prove that he was in town in Oklahoma City the day before, right. less than 24 hours before the abduction of these two girls. So now we have Oklahoma who wants to interview this guy either in Alabama, but most likely they want to bring him back to Oklahoma. Corey seems somewhat cooperative at first, but tells the investigators, yes, I was in Oklahoma City. Yeah. And we will just say, okay, see. Yeah. Is that what the kids say going forward? So on September 25th, he says he was in OKC when he went to the hospital for Demerol injections for that ulcer. But yeah. he says after the hospital, he left the state that same day. According to Donald Corey, he was not in Oklahoma City on the 26th when the two girls were abducted. Do, do we know if he works for the, like the state fair? That's what's tricky regarding this identification badge. It seems to be that it was some type of work identification badge. Right. But some information that I found stated that it wasn't for that fairgrounds, that it wasn't in regards to that exact area. Okay. Police want to question him more, but Corey gets a court appointed attorney and he tells Corey to shut his mouth and no longer speak with the police. Then quickly, something started to fall apart for the investigators. First, when Corey is arrested, his vehicle does not match the vehicle the boys say the abductor was driving. So to be clear, Donald Corey's vehicle that he's driving at the time of his arrest, it's his vehicle. It's titled to him. It's registered to him. It's not like he's driving a stolen car or anything. And the description of the abductor's vehicle, it went it wasn't even a close match to Corey's car. Donald Corey drove a green Oldsmobile station wagon. The boys said the abductor drove them to the truck stop in a 1980 or 1981 model Pontiac beige Grand Prix. Police in Alabama analyzed Corey's vehicle, and there's also no indications that the two girls were ever in this vehicle. It takes a couple of days, but Donald Corey is sent back to OKC. There, during the course of a lineup, both boys failed to correctly identify Donald Corey as having been the man that the two boys saw driving away with the girls. Don't got him. Don't got him. Then, to make the case against Corey even weaker, he finally tells police he was in Dallas, Texas the day the girls were abducted, receiving a Demerol injection from a doctor. So, 
Not only does it appear that Donald Corey has an ulcer or maybe he doesn't, that is unclear. However, what is clear, this is by Corey's own admission. He is addicted to Demerol and he's looking to get one or two Demerol injections a day. That's his thing. And it sounds like he was fairly good at achieving this goal because he is getting doctors to give him these injections and often it's not all on the up and up. And even though it was on the down low, these illegal injections in Dallas, the day of the abductions, Corey's attorney gets the doctor in Dallas to back up Donald Corey's story, providing him an alibi for the day. And with that, the charges against him and rightfully so are dropped. And he probably has no explanation of why this person would have a name tag with his name on it. Other than he didn't have it in his possession. He wasn't sure of when he had lost the ID badge. Right. What a smart idea. Grab a name badge with a picture and I'm going to, hey, I'm going to hire you guys. And then you take off with these girls. Who cares that they saw you? I mean, they might be able to pick you out of a lineup, Mm -hmm. but they're remembering that badge. They're remembering the name. Yeah. And it's surprising too, if it's actual, if it was actually Donald's picture on the badge, which it was lucky for him that they didn't remember that picture to pick him out of the lineup. Yeah. You're, you're they exactly could have right. Been, they could have not even remembered the face and just remembered the picture and then went, it's that guy. Yep. And then what do you do if you go, well, we got two people picking him out of the lineup, but we have a doctor that's given him an alibi. Yeah. And the thing here is it sounds like there was trouble getting that the doctor wasn't very forthcoming. You know, it took some convincing, by the attorney to get the doctor to come forward with this alibi. I wonder if that's because of how much Demerol they're giving him. Well, it was an illegal injection. Right. Well, to this day, Cinda Pallet and Charlotte Kinsey, they've never been found. At the time of her disappearance, Cinda Pallet was five foot tall and 88 pounds. She is part Caucasian, part Hispanic, and has brown hair and brown eyes. Cinda has a small scar below the corner of her left eyebrow. Her collarbone was previously broken, but healed at the time or before the time she vanished. At the time of her disappearance, she wore a dental retainer behind her lower front teeth. She was last seen wearing jeans, a white t-shirt, jersey with dark blue sleeves and the words ZZ Top on the front and 88 on the back. She was also wearing Nike sneakers. At the time of Charlotte's disappearance, she was five foot to five foot one inches tall and weighed 100 to 105 pounds. She had blonde hair and blue eyes. She has a small dot shaped scar below her left eye caused by pencil lead. Charlotte has silver caps on her lower front teeth and pierced ears. She also has a triangular shaped birthmark on her lower back near the waistline. She was last seen wearing a white blouse with maroon stripes blue jeans, and sneakers. If you have any information regarding the whereabouts of Cinda Pallet or Charlotte Kinsey, please call the Oklahoma Police Missing Persons Unit at 405-297-1129 or call Crime Stoppers at 405-235-7300. Callers to Crime Stoppers can remain anonymous and may be eligible for cash rewards. Please join us back here in the garage tomorrow for the conclusion of this case. Until then, be good, be kind, and don't litter.
Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.